The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast. Today, I am joined by Zach Ferris, who was the founder and former CEO of Coplex, which was a startup studio based out of Phoenix, Arizona. Zach is a startup value creator now working as an operating partner and board member to several startups in Arizona, including Dealer Peak CRM, Dovely, Quick, Clever Health, and ZG Gas. Zach, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, did you know that I almost got charged for you missing our live studio session today? Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I was going to literally tell the guy that I would never use him again if he tried to charge me for it. <laughs> is it a, a podcasting studio in Old Town? Yeah, it's, it's not, yeah, it's out of Phoenix. Or Excuse me. It's in Scottsdale. It's right down the street from me. It's kind of like a co-working podcasting um, scenario. Dude. Like I was asking him, like, he's like, it has like six or seven locations. And I was like, are you guys doing really well? And he's like, we're doing okay. I was like, I don't, I don't know if you sign leases if you're just doing okay. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know those existed. Mm-hmm. The rent a podcast booth. Next business idea. Right. There's something for everything. So, right. Zach, what are you working on right now? Um, I've got, got a, a handful of, of companies where um, I still spend a few hours a week and Coplex, um, JQ, our managing partner, is kind of running the show there. But we have about 60 portfolio companies at Coplex. So, different day, different needs. Uh, try to help out where I can there. Uh, we've got a couple of corporate partners we work with and then um, on the Coplex side. And then outside of Coplex, I'm like like you mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on a few boards. Um, they've done some angel deals that I, I get personally involved with um, and then do a little bit of consulting type work for, for growth ventures. But yeah, working in an automotive CRM SaaS company. Uh, I've got a couple fintech companies I'm working with. We've got one in the real estate space called Investor Hub that's going to be changing its name pretty soon to Hubsy. Uh, we've got one that we're working with. It's um, um, in the automotive retail um, sort of uh, automotive consignment, automotive retail space. So all kinds of different things, different uh, different challenges every day. And and yeah, as you mentioned, Clever Health, which is digital health space. So uh, straddling a, a, a few different projects and try to try to add value where I can. That's awesome. So let's let's rewind um, because the audience doesn't know what Coplex is and and that story. So let's start off in the origin story. You know, when Zach was just a little Midwestern boy. In, in Ohio. And let's start with that and how you've come to build your businesses and how you ended up um, in Arizona. Sure thing. Yeah. So grew up in uh, a, a small little farm town in Ohio called Bellevue. Um, I pretty, pretty, I got into entrepreneurship pretty early. I started a, when I was in high school, I was doing com like computer repair and web design, um, ended up building that business through college 
by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, we had a team of 12 uh, full-time team members that were doing uh, web design, web hosting, um, and some IT and kind of software development work. Um, that company was called Bounce Fire. We ended up presenting that business at uh, something called the Global Student Entrepreneur Awards, which was put on by the Kauffman Foundation and EO. And as part of... Ended up making it to global finals for that Global Student Entrepreneurship Awards pitch uh, deal. And at the at the global finals, we were one of the uh, top thirty undergraduate led student entrepreneurs in the in the in the world. Um, so there were three from the U.S. and then twenty seven others that came in. When was and this? This was in two thousand ten. Right. So this is when like agency stuff, creative stuff was innovation. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we built a great little business. And what I, what I learned about that first company was was the importance of recurring revenue because we had uh, the web hosting part of the business that just paid. Um, I mean every every month we get a check in the mail and it was super high margin revenue and um, it was kind of our, our introduction to this whole recurring revenue thing. So ended up actually the when we pitched that business at the GSEA. It's, it was was actually at the Coffin Foundation in Kansas City. Uh, one of the judges was from Scottsdale and pulled me aside and said, "Hey, I want to buy your company." Um, so there, there were twelve of us at the time. We sat down and we decided we were all going to go move to Scottsdale and, and, and do the deal. Um, so I did my first M and A deal at, at twenty four. Um, ended up in Scottsdale with uh, with my buddies that, that built Bounce Fire. Uh, worked with the acquiring business for about a year. That was also in kind of the web hosting, kind of web design space, um, and then finished up that. And and that's actually when I um, joined forces with with Ilya Posen, my co-founder from from Coplex. Um, and when I actually took the business over, business was called Cyplex, C I P L E X, and it was about a forty person um, product design and innovation studio. So it was an agency agency model, and I took it over. What and happened, to Ilya? You didn't want to do it anymore. He uh, so he 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 continued to stay pretty involved for about two years, and and wanted to. I mean, his goal was to start more startups. I mean, Ilya is a, a startup junkie. Uh, we still work on a lot of things together today. Is that um, what he's so doing he, now? It is. Yeah. Yeah. He took... Um, so he built... He ended up building a company called Pluto TV, um, which we sort of um, started on the very, very early days of it inside of Coplex and sold it to Viacom for $340 million about two years ago. Um, so nice. he took a little break after that. And now he's he's slowly starting to, to get his hands back into some other, other deals. Very cool. And so you joined him. You did a management buyout. And for the audience who doesn't don't understand what that is, what is that? Yeah. So he took over the business in 2012. He hired me as a CEO. So I was a hired, hired executive, um, ran the business for about four years. And in 2016, uh, decided that uh, I wanted to buy the business from the partners. So um, we we did uh, we did a management buyout. Essentially, what I ended up doing, I went out, I raised some. Uh, the business was profitable at the time. So we were able to get some bank debt. Um, so we got kind of a combination of bank debt and we raised some equity. So raised some capital from uh, kind of angel investors. And then we also did a seller carry back note. So um, the sellers finance some of the transactions. So between the debt, the equity, and then um, the seller financing that was provided, I was able to buy out. Um, buy out the business from the two original co-founders, Nick and Ilya. Um, there's right, because you weren't like you weren't super flush back then. That was kind of earlier in your career. Yep, yep. I, right. I did so it yeah, you had to sell my cash. Yeah, it's a management buyout where you didn't buy anything. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, other people's money. <laughs> so you sold, you know, the idea to your partners that the business would be better with you running it and like a significant owner on the cap table than them selling it in the open market. Mm -hmm. Correct? 
Right. Yep. Yeah. Was that was that a hard sell, or did he just really believe in you? Um, I mean, the, the we we were. Um, I was I was lucky to have good partners. I know a lot of times management buyouts can be really contentious because essentially I'm trying to buy the thing for as cheap as I can, and they're trying to sell it for as much as they can. So it kind of immediately puts you at odds with your with your partners. But um, I think we we came to a pretty fair um, kind of a fair point in terms of value for the business, and um, the way we did it, we actually. Um, agreed upon a mutual sort of val- like a, an independent um, CPA firm that does valuations of, of agencies. And at the time, we were a services business and agency. So we, we basically agreed to, um, to go with whatever valuation they came up with. And, um, and, and, and they were kind of giving me the, the option to buy the business at that price once we got back to valuation. And we thought that was fair went through the process, arrived at a number that we, we thought was reasonable. And what was the metric? Was it a multiple of EBITDA, multiple of revenue? EBITDA multiple. Yep. EBITDA multiple? Yep. So was it like four, five, six times? Oh man, I don't even remember what we got. Um, business was doing about four, four and a half million in revenue, probably 10% EBITDA. Um, we probably had a, a three to four times EBITDA multiple. Yeah, I think yeah. agencies now are selling for like three times revenue. Jesus, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, in hot spaces, um, especially in the vertical SaaS business, I'm seeing like uh, you know if you're in X vertical, and then there's the the agency that specializes in X vertical websites. Yeah, you know, they you know they can just cross sell it. Um, those are going pretty pretty hot right now. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, the agency model is a very very hard business model, um, which is why we ended up shifting actually, but tough business model. Anyone that comes to me and says they're starting an agency, I tell them one of two things, at least on kind of the web digital side, I tell them either focus on a vertical. Um, like you just said, I think that that strategy makes a ton of sense. If you, if you hyper-focus and, and just be an agency only for a vertical and get to know that space really well, or focus on one particular tech stack. So one of my friends runs a web flow agency and that's all they do is web flow. Um, but what's that? It's kind of a low code, no code website builder platform, like the best one out there right now. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think these little like micro niches, um, from a platform or technology perspective, or go sort of with an industry niche and, and focus entirely on that. Like that's the only way to make these things work. So are his customers looking for people that specialize on that platform? <laughs> um, trying to figure that out. It's, uh, he he works with a lot of sort of seed series A, series B stage startups that don't really need to go build custom websites. Uh, they need more of a simple mm-hmm. marketing site. And Webflow is just an incredible tool for that. So he's able to convince them that this is a, a good way to do it and it's way cheaper. Um, but I, I do think he's he's starting to get more integrated with the Webflow community and becoming like one of the go-to um, development shops, you know, design development shops in that space too. Because in the in the agency world where you're selling time, having scale is important. So on the vertical industry side, selling to the same customers using the same templates, you get a version of scale. And then on the Webflow side, using the same tech stack, everyone speaking the same language, you also can get scale. 
Is that, am I, is that, am I thinking about that correctly? You, yeah, you are the, I mean, the biggest problem with a, an agency typically is, is, is you're managing utilization rates, right? If you have less than a you know, 60, 70, 80% utilization rate, the thing burns cash. So you always have to have work to do. And it's hard to sequence work because things start and end at different times because each project is unique. So, um, the, 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 the thing that, I mean, the, the no nonsense thing that it does when you have an agency that's focused in a vertical is it just makes it really easy for them to win business. Um, it's very difficult for a broad based agency to go out and, and, and keep a consistent and steady backlog of projects and work. Um, because there's just so much noise. But if you're like the only agency that understands like the names, the acronyms, the tools, the integration partners, like players, the investors, like if you know everybody and like there's a, an agency that focuses on um, franchise sports teams, that's all they do. NBA, NFL, MLB, mm-hmm. anything related to those, like they are the shop you go to. And because of that, they've, they've kind of cut through the signal of noise. They're not losing business to other agencies. They've kind of like monopolized that whole vertical. And then it allows them mm-hmm. to vertically stack solutions that are recurring revenue and higher margins. So they get web, ho- they bundle web hosting, they bundle web chat, they bundle, they start bundling things that are higher margin. And then they retain sort of this backlog of work because they've, they're the only guys or like the best guys in the space. Um, and that, that combination of staying busy and vertically stacking up your, your sort of service offering, um, it, 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 I, I can believe a three, four times top line revenue multiple if, if someone pulls that off. Yeah. And everybody thinks that their business and their vertical is super specific. And unless you've worked within that specific vertical, you just don't understand. Yeah. And I mean, it's, there's some truth to it. Um, I mean, when you think of building a company, like, you need to you need to know the vertical and you need to know the the business model, right? So there's kind of two dimensions. And there's like you could go and build a SaaS company in healthcare and then translate that into building a SaaS company in automotive. Um, but you still need to go learn that whole vertical. Like even if you know the business, like you need to know both to build a really successful company. And if you kind of you can have that fungibility of experience with business model, or you can stay in the vertical. But you kind of need to know. Both. Like the companies that do really, really well, they know their vertical and they they know their model. And the problem with burning cash in an agency is that you have to raise additional funds. You're diluting the cap table, and these businesses don't sell for very much because you're not a platform. You're selling time, and um, the EV just isn't there. Enterprise value. Yeah, I mean, with any services company, like the the margin structure we ran at Cyplex before we converted to the into you know, the startup studio. Model, Model, um, was a 50% gross margin target, 80% utilization targets. We try our damnedest to get to a 15% net operating margin. Um, so we try to pull 15% to the bottom line. Now, that's pretty standard in services, like professional services companies. That's a pretty standard kind of income statement margin structure. But it, it's really tricky because if your, mar- if your utilization rates go down a little bit because you underestimated a project or you don't have enough work or you overhired or hired up too soon, uh, you immediately destroy your thin margins, you're burning cash and you never recover that. Um, Cause it's not like you're with like the beauty of the SaaS business model. I think you and I share, we love SaaS. The beauty of it is it it's, it's recurring revenue and it compounds and a good SaaS business is an 80% gross margin business. So the margin structure structure just makes it a much more valuable asset. And so when you're, 
operating on those types of margins in an agency, the I would think the obvious solution is is always make sure that you're selling, always make sure your pipeline's full. But the problem with that is, is if you become overutilized, you're not giving a great customer experience. Yeah. I mean, and then also you're selling against everybody in their, in their, you know, and their that's the biggest problem is it's like, I, I started an agency essentially when I was in my dorm room in college without a degree with no money. That's all I had was a computer and like a half-assed internet connection. And I was competing against agencies, right? And in the super low barrier, and it's gotten, the barriers have gotten lower and lower. I mean, you can literally use Webflow or, you know, Good Barber. There's like, you can build an app in two hours for iOS and Android without knowing how to write a line of code. Uh, so if anything, like the barriers have gotten even lower than it was. And I started mine 15 years ago when I was in college in a dorm room with just a computer. So there's there's very a very low amount of defensibility for these companies. And that just creates a ton of market like there's just a lot of market, there's a lot of pressure from competition. Like you, it's really, really hard to go and differentiate and like anyone and their cousin and their brother knows someone that does this work. So it's like a real estate agent. It's yeah, it is. And I think we're, we've ridden down the commoditization curve of, of digital marketing services and like web design or development services. You know, we, we made a shift at the right time. I wouldn't want to be in that business right now, unless you're one of the Who the did companies. it right? Yeah, who did it right? Like, who's the best company that's ever done it? Um, I mean, some of these vertically specific ones, um, like, uh, I mean, there's, there's the winners that, that made it out the other end were the ones that did what we just talked about, right? They're vertical specific, and they built a stack of services beyond just the, the web design, web development, and digital marketing services. Um, right, stuff that had recurring potential. They were reselling software. Yes, and the other ones that won were the Squarespaces of the world, the Shopify's of the world, the Weebly's of the world. The uh, and I, I it's I I want to like shake myself because when I saw these companies come out, I knew that this was what was going to happen, and I wish I would have just like invested a, a shit ton when these companies went public because and they've done what I expected them to do. But yeah, the, there's there's actually a company here in town um, in Phoenix, not much talked about. Um, their CEOs in my CEO peer group. It's called um, Retailer Web Services, and they they went and did this. They built a vertically. They, they went and focused on independent uh, f- mattress and like furniture, like mattress appliance and furniture retailers, like independently owned. Retailers. That's pretty. That's, that's pretty Super niche. niche, right? <laughs> but they, they started doing web design, and then yeah. they realized that they could shift their model from a kind of upfront fee fee-for-service web design to more of a monthly recurring subscription-based service that bundled the hosting and inventory management. And eventually they worked in like, they found ways to work with the the manufacturers and the OEMs to get like rebate data and pricing and incentive data structures. And they became the only ones in that whole space that had access to all the inventory data and the rebate and incentive data. And, um, and, they, and then they started rolling out like chat tools and like um, they built like a programmatic kind of digital advertising platform and they, they started just stacking up. And I think they, you know, they had a really great exit uh, about two years ago now. And I want to say they got a close to a 10 times revenue multiple, but they were a 50%. Yeah. Because they became a, because they became a data, yeah, company, a data right? company and a kind of a, a SaaS company, but yet they had, you know, 25 people on staff that were designing websites and doing like banner designs and stuff. So it, they found a way to kind of reinvent the agency business model and make it more attractive. And this thing spun off, you know, 50% profit margins, net profit margins. Wow. So it's just a cash cow. 
That's and insane. then they, they got a, an awesome multiple and they sold the company. So that's another it's a case in point of like, there's ways to get creative about business model design. Even in the ugliest of business models and the ugliest of verticals, you can sometimes you can find a, a way to, to really create enterprise value. So yeah, so this is a really great segue into Coplex and what you were you know trying to do in the earlier stages. So tell me when you got the MBO, what uh what what was the next step within Coplex? What was the the um the mission? Yeah, so me and all of my you know my co-founders, you know Ilya that I worked with, um, still work with, and by the way, he's still a minority partner in the company, so he's still uh, still involved in Coplex, but um. We're all serial entrepreneurs. And what we realized after running this agency for really both of us, that's all we did our whole life was run an agency. He, we both started them in high school and built them through college and whatever. But we realized that what we got really good at was we worked with a ton of different industries or a ton of different businesses, like thousands of businesses across every vertical you could imagine. And we had to learn how to help these people make money online across all of these different verticals. Um, so we, we got really good at, at, at sort of, you know, business model design and, um, and we got really good at digital and we, we realized that, um, a lot of the companies that we were, were building at Cyplex at the time, um, were startups and we love this. The, the startups were the things that got us the most excited. So we, my, the, the vision that I had when I, uh, when I bought the company was we wanted to reinvent our own business model and find a way to actually capture a piece of upside and the value that we created for these companies that went on to be successful. So we, I mean, Cyplex worked with companies that went on and I mean, these companies went on and raised literally tens of billions of dollars in venture and private equity money, had enormous exits. Um, and and we worked with these companies at the formative stages. And we kind of learned the playbook because we did it, we did it over and over again. So the vision we had with it was let's turn Coplex into a company that's really good at building startups. And let's, let's take a piece of upside in each deal we do, the, each deal we do, and let's build a platform to empower entrepreneurs to go build successful tech companies. And the, and the term, and the term for that is a startup studio. It is. So the startup studio thing is a pretty new business model. Um, I read a white paper in 2015 um, there was like the first piece written on the startup studio model. There were probably 10 of them around the world at the time. And I read the business, I read the article, it was in like an agency publication. Um, and it talked about the future agency is going to become a startup studio. And I read this whole thing and I was like, this just makes way too much sense. Um, like it just, it, it just hit, it resonated with me. So we, we went over it at our, at our company offsite. Um, and then we we built a five year plan to go convert Cyplex into a startup studio. So that was when we you know, rebranded the business to Coplex and um, went down this this journey of, of building uh, building a company that essentially systematically and repeatedly starts high growth tech companies. Um, and we became sort of a, a venture launch pad at that point. So who was doing it at the time? Very few people. Uh, the first one was um, Idea Labs in Pasadena. They started doing this in the 80s. They actually right. predate the kind of startup incubator, startup accelerator business models. The, the ones that were doing it at the time uh, were Betaworks in New York, Science in Santa Monica, High Alpha in Indianapolis was just getting started, Pioneer Square Labs in Seattle, Rocket Internet in Berlin actually took a model public doing kind of a pseudo startup studio model. Huh. Interesting. Yep. So there were a handful at the time. Now there's hundreds. Um, 
I'd say Coplex in terms of like number of equity positions and, and companies, Coplex is probably in the top five, maybe top 10 around the world, mm-hmm. just in terms of how many we built. But it's um, really, I, to this day, I think it's a fascinating business model. It's also, it comes with its own slew of challenges, but um, we were, were able to, to make the, the transition over, over a couple of years. So for the listeners, there's often um, a lot of questions around what's an accelerator, what's an incubator, and what's a startup studio? So can you break that down for us? Yeah. Um, so the, the typical incubator is a, um, you know, might be a, a three to six month program or more kind of curriculum driven. There's usually some sort of like mentorship or advisory component and maybe some, you know, some social gatherings or events. And it, it usually it usually sort of culminates to some kind of a pitch event where you're pitching for some grant money or a scholarship or you know, some funding in some cases. Usually you don't pay to go through an incubator. Usually you don't give up any equity to go through an incubator. They're usually provided by, you know, local nonprofits or a school, or um, sometimes there's, you know, there's some, there, there's some for-profit incubators out there, but. So you don't, you don't see it like in Silicon Valley where someone just gives out their rooms in their house. For <laughs> yeah, but, and the, the, there's some of those, <laughs> definitely some of those too. Um, it's more of a, an equity exchange. I, I want to do that. I want to just like, let's have people come to my house and give me equity and just, yeah, I'm sure your wife would love that. Wife will just be, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just have a bunch of people in the rooms and you can go in there and ask right. what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Right, yeah. so if better. anything, you're giving up, you know, one, two, three percent of the company. Um, a lot of times they're 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 free, um, and and you you pitch at the end for some cash. Accelerators are 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 usually for companies that already have a founding team. They've already got a product in market. They've probably got a couple customers, at least a customer, and they're looking to get kind of accelerated from this point of maybe like a thousand, call it a thousand dollars a month or two thousand a month in revenue to kind of a ten thousand, twenty thousand a month in revenue mark where they can go raise outside capital, like seed stage VC money. So accelerators are usually like coming in at sort of halfway between inception and seed stage, and then they kick you in the ass to get you to seed stage. They provide again similar things. Sometimes it's curriculum expertise, mentorship, weekly potlucks, like why, you know, why Combinator does. Um, and um, their idea is to basically, again, culminates to a pitch event that's usually for seed funding. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I never really understood what went on in an accelerator. I, I thought, you know, just a little bit of curriculum and, you know, the, the pitch event at the end, and there's a great connection opportunity. I was talking to a guy here in town in Phoenix that went to YC and he was so like stressed out. He told me like his experience at YC mm-hmm. like was great, but it was so intense. Yeah, they give you some homework just every week. Yeah. Just down, yeah, yeah. I mean, like like down his throat. Who are you selling? Who are you yep. selling? Who are you selling? And um, really pushing them to 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 drive revenue growth, almost free product market fit. Just to get yep. the investment. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, like incubation is all about, it's usually like napkin stage or very early stage ideas and kind of just getting them going. Then the accelerator comes right after that. And it takes them from, you know, first or second customer to seed funding. They pitch to get the seed funding. And then they, they usually leave the nest of the accelerator and become part of like the alumni network or something, right? Which is usually a Slack channel um, and maybe an annual event <laughs> or something like that. And, right. So... And so the startup studio differentiates from an incubator and accelerator in which so startup studios are, are literally starting companies from scratch. Um, startup studios are, um, they're actually going to come in and they come in different kind of flavors and, and, and forms, but 
generally speaking, a venture studio or a startup studio is going to come in, play around with a whole bunch of different ideas. The ones that stick, they start them from scratch. And oftentimes, they place someone to run them. Um, so the startup studios aren't really doing a call for applicants that bring in a bunch of people that have their businesses and their ideas and bring them through and, and kind of bring them through a program. Instead, the studio is usually the one that um, that, that sort of sources sources ideas, validates ideas, and then they launch businesses from the ground up with those ideas and place someone to run them. And then the startup studio will typically support that venture with hands-on support and services for for some period. Some of them are you know, six months, nine months, 12 months. Some of them are forever. Um, and the studio, unlike an accelerator and incubator, startup studio is actually providing things like legal support, software engineering support, design support, business modeling, finance, back office, accounting, recruiting. Like there's actually people that will will like log in and build your, you know, build your chart of accounts and run your books for you. Um, so they're actually providing hands-on resources that an incubator or accelerator won't do. Um, and yeah, usually the CEOs are are placed uh, to run companies that come out of the studio. So who pays for it? All kinds of different models, and that's that's definitely the challenge with the studio. Um, some that I mentioned, like High Alpha and Pioneer Square Labs, they go out and raise a fund. Um, they'll go raise a fifty million dollar fund, and they'll actually use the fund to invest in companies at the pre-seed stage and just and claw back their fees to cover the overhead of the studio. Um, there's other structures mm-hmm. where it's a $50 million fund and, and, and it's a 3 or 4% annual management fee. And they use that management fee to cover the costs of the support for the portfolio companies. There's some models like at, in the early days of Coplex. And then, and then each portfolio company, each portfolio company gets an allocation from that fund, which goes to the management company. Yes. It's one, one way to think about it. Like the, the management, the management fees from the fund. Would be used to pay this or to cover the studio's overhead, and then the studio would provide services to the companies at, at basically no cash charge, and then take some equity. Okay, so where's the where's the fifty million go though? Where's the actual um, that goes into go? the companies after they you know either during the either either like when they spin out of the studio or when they when they leave the studio that money gets invested directly into the new co's. Gotcha. So that's that's actually that's investable right. capital, growth capital, yeah. or yeah. For some into of them the do the clawback model, right? So they'll do a fifty million dollar fund. They'll set aside twenty five million dollars in investable capital over four year four year deployment period. They'll put eight million bucks into four companies a year, two million bucks a company, and a million of that two million that they put into each company, they'll claw back into the studio. So it leaves a million in the business, and then mm-hmm. they take back a million to provide the the support and services. Right? I just made up the numbers there, but. Um, that clawback sure. model is is something that I've seen, and then some charge. Um, at, at Coplex, we we go find big corporate partners that have an interest in innovation and corporate venturing and uh, commercialization, and we basically get them to cover. Um, we we either you know they either pay Coplex to do it for them, or in most cases, as of late, we're working with big corporates that want to start their own venture studio. Um, we help them design it and structure it and stand it up. And then we take a piece of the carry um, or some equity upside in the whole portfolio. And then we charge a fee um, to come and help them manage or co-manage their studio. So there's mm-hmm. there's kind of some different some different models. Sure. And so you've helped hundreds of companies through Coplex. So what is the pattern recognition within technology? Like how would you bucket um you know, if there's like five business models within technology, like how would you say, how do you, how do you archetype uh, a startup? In terms of like, how do we think about business model design? 
or like what are the patterns that we see Correct. that are successful? Yeah. Right. Correct. Right. So how do you think about business model design? Person comes to you and says, I, I've got this idea. I want to pay for it to, to go. What's your process of, yeah. of, of doing that? This, this was big. I mean, this was back to the 2016 story. We, after helping so many startups like build and launch um, as an agency, we had to get really good at methodologies and approaches for doing that. So we were really early in the lean startup movement. Like the day Eric Reese published the book, we were like all over it. Um, so we, we got really... Um, into the whole lean startup methodology and kind of scrum agile methodology on the product development side. Um, and then we, we sort of fell in love with a lot of Alexander Osterwalder's work. So business model generation, um, lots of good and value proposition design. There was a lot of really good learnings from those. So over the years, we sort of came up with our own methodology, but the, the, the simplest way to describe it is we use kind of a one page business model canvas. It's kind of our version. We call it our, our complex, uh, our complex canvas, but it's a one page business model canvas. We, we work with a venture to define the canvas. We then go through and figure out. Of all the stuff we put on that that business model canvas, what are the things that have the highest level of risk or uncertainty? Um, we stack those and build sort of a risk stack list of assumptions. We peel off the top two or three, and we go and find the cheapest, fastest way to go test those assumptions before we go build a product and build a company. We try to bring the risk level down as much as we can. Um, then we go through the exercise again, update it with what we learned, restack the assumptions, peel off the next three, and then we'll go build like a minimum viable product, test, learn, iterate. And it's this kind of cyclical process of assumption definition, assumption validation. Um, and that all drives our product development plans. Uh, so all of our product development work is really a function of what is the what are the assumptions we need to go test next. And then we quickly kind of iterate and cycle through and try to find ways to use third-party systems, tools, shortcuts, make things feel automated when they're not. Um, but this kind of helps you get to market with an MVP. Like napkin to MVP in 90 days was uh, is always our focus at Coplex. Um, and then that gives you you know, six months of running through this iterative process of assumption validation. And then that then drives your product development roadmaps, right? How hard is that to do without the founder and CEO? It's you can do a lot of the very early assumption assumption validation work and some of like the like business model like financial model stress testing and customer discovery work and like you can do a lot of this without the CEO, but it's very difficult to do this without someone like literally like 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 focused entirely on on bringing in those first few paying customers. Like you, you can't. Right. It's like somebody, like I said, from the corporation example, you can't just have a chief strategy guy that this is a side project that the board wanted to do. Like they have to have a champion that's really yeah, all in on with this. Corporate partners, we get them to fund, um, we get them to fund the studio outside of the corporate. And then the, the studio will tinker with stuff internally. And then the stuff that works, it kind of passes through the customer development gate. It gets spun out into a new co. And then as soon as it's spun out as a new co, we place a CEO to run it. So very, very early on, we get we get a CEO. Usually, you know, three months into tinkering with a venture, we're placing a CEO to run it and focus on it full time for equity. And this isn't how yeah, how hard is it to find a CEO? It's gonna be pretty difficult. Huh? Um you, you might be surprised because if the the pitch we use to a CEO in this model is Hey, listen, we've, um, you've got the studio behind this and the corporate partner behind this. 
We've spent three months validating this this product. It's got a high degree. It stacks up really well against the thousands of businesses we've evaluated over the, the last few years. Um, we're going to give you. I'm making this up. But we're going to give you ten grand a month salary. We're going to give you all your health insurance and benefits you need. We're going to put you know half a million to a million bucks into the company, and we're going to give you twelve months of support from all of the super talented team at the studio. Um, and we're going to give you you know twenty percent of the business in equity over over on a four year vesting schedule. Um, so they they get a salary, benefits, decent equity. Uh, decent equity strip. Oh, and by the way, if you need to raise money in the future um, through Coplex and through our corporate partners, we're going to make that process a lot easier for you. Um, so you don't have to go spend a ton of time raising money, but they get a salary, they get benefits, they get equity, they get a slightly de-risk business model. They get you know support um, from, from us for a year. They have kind of a built-in team of engineers, designers, lawyers, accountants, whoever else they need. Because uh, we're either providing that or bringing in vendors to provide that, and they get you know they don't have to go raise money; they get a million bucks in the bank that they can use to build their team and make hiring decisions and so on and so forth. So it's good fish. And so the corporate has to has to kind of agree to fund it. Um, after they that. usually each is unique. I mean, a lot of them will tranche you know million, two million, five million bucks into the business over two years. Um, but the the whole idea of the studio for a corporate to get the Sort of alpha and beta they need out of this this investment. You kind of have to let the external world fund these things. Like the corporate just can't keep funding it forever. So the idea is usually the corporate comes in, they precede it, it comes through comes through the studio, leaves the studio. Maybe the corporate investor leads and leads the seed round. But then by the time they get to Series A, like they're going and raising money from VC firms, not from not from the corporate. The corporate might have some pro rights, but they're not leading Series A and Series B rounds typically. Right, because they want they don't they don't want to fund this thing the whole time. They're worried about yeah, their, blow up their return profile if they try to fund these things in perpetuity. Um, they they can't. Um, they're not right. going to get the you know, the risk adjusted returns they need out of the the studio investment if they do that. So tell me what happened next. You're running this business model, and then dot dot dot. Um, How'd you go into transitioning from being at Coplex, you know, into now kind of yeah. doing what you're doing now? Um, we decided in 2020, actually, like right before COVID, uh, beginning of the year 2020, we decided to bring a CEO into the business. Um, I wanted to to move a little bit more passive. Um, I've been grinding really hard for nine years in the business. Yeah, that's a lot of time. I was talking to a founder yesterday. There, there is a shelf yeah. life to founders. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like honestly, I mean, it's. I think it's between seven to ten where you really just yeah. start getting diminished yeah. returns. Yeah, and I I realized that, so it was um, it was a tough decision, but um, decided to um, we decided to bring on see well started as a president, and then the idea was president few months transition CEO role, and then I could move over to the board. Um, COVID happened, so threw a wrench in some of the timing on this, but took a took more of a passive role, moved to the board, um, was trying to focus a little more on helping the portfolio companies rather than running the day-to-day of the studio. Um, so we did that. Um, unfortunately, COVID hit. Everything basically got put on pause. Like All of our corporate partners just froze everything. Yeah. Your pipeline yeah. dried up. So like we had a really... I mean, we were fortunate. We got a little bit of PPP money. So we were able to hang on to the team for a little while. Um, but it was it was a really rough year um, to the point where our our CEO sort of threw in the flag after about a year. She uh, she'd gotten a, a really great opportunity um, with another startup, so um, we decided after that not to to go bring in another CEO, but to instead move to more of a managing partner model. 
Um, so I, I stepped back in mm-hmm. as a kind of part-time managing partner, um, helped with the transition. We brought Jake uh, in, who's a former co-plexer, um, to, to run sort of day-to-day operations as, a, as an MP. And we're, we're just now, we just, it, just this year, stuff's finally started to like turn back on. So we've got um, two sizable you know, corporate partner deals we're working now. And we've added two team members, but we'll probably be back to hiring and, and, and hopefully grow on the business again this year. But it was... It's kind of interesting because our portfolio actually did very well during the um, during this the last two years. We had a really great exit in December um, from our equity portfolio. Uh, Smile Virtual. Who's that here in town? Uh, so we had oh yeah, nice, right, 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 right. Yeah, it was it was a good that was one. A great and it was quick. Um, it was really really fast. Uh, so portfolio has done really well, and um, the business just we, we had to downsize considerably. I mean, going into COVID, we had thirty three employees. When I took things back over last May, we had like seven or eight ended up going down to like three Ugh. to even two for a minute. Uh, and now we're kind of building, you know, building wow. the team back up. Well, you know, as you said, it's impossible, this kind of agency model, especially in, in pandemic times and, and building that engine again will take time. So do you feel like Hopelex is going to start, start moving again? Do you feel like um, it's going to catch legs and, you know, it's yeah, going to be um, raise? It's been it's been it's been a really good few months, and I, even the last couple of years, um, I, I I give a ton of props to our board because I actually um, I'm I'm one of the one of the five board members, but I went in and said, hey, we should just wind this down. Um, let's not do the studio anymore, and let's just focus on the portfolio and, and make the best outcome we can with the, the 50, 58 companies or whatever we had at the time. Um, and the rest of the board's like, no, we don't want to give up on this. Like, this is too important to Arizona. This is too important to us. Um, there's kind of a give back kind of social impact component to what we do. We've helped a lot of entrepreneurs and, uh, the board didn't want to give up. So they threw some more cash in the business and, um, we got through the tough times. And now we're, um, we're seeing just in the last six months, a lot of interest in corporate startup studios, um, which is a very new. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. The timing was just like, Coincidentally, really good, but I think the um, I mean we're getting Fortune 500 companies every every week that are reaching out, um, finding like our old articles and whatever else, and they're interested in starting studios. So I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty bullish on things, super bullish on the portfolio. Um, I'm hoping we can we can start to to get some more traction this year, and um, there's a good chance we might either uh, there's a good chance we'll have a, a CEO in this business um, in the next nine months. Um, I don't know if we'll... Oh, wow. So you're not, you're not throwing your, your hat back in there. Not going to make a triumphant return. You're not going to I, I don't think so. Um, I, I know, I, I know my, my strengths and what I'm really good at. And I want to continue to, to do that work for Coplex. And I don't want to say it's impossible, but um, I think we could probably find, you know, a, a better, a better operator for, for the direction that we're headed. So I know I, you know, I was talking to, um, I have, I have an upcoming uh, podcast with Justin mm-hmm. Gray from Lead MD, who runs, uh, who ran an agency that mm-hmm. had some significant scale. And there's just guys that know how t- to calculate every penny, you know, like, and it's it's just incredibly, incredibly difficult. And um, I'm certainly not one of those people. Um, I, I, I never claim to be an operator, even though I've, I've ran, uh, I ran and sold my business, but I don't, I don't wear that crown as being the VC turned op or operator turned VC. Um, I, I give a lot of credit to operators and to founders because having that endurance to, um, 
that like empathy I mean, and hurts is it, it's pretty I rough. a lot of people sort of romanticize this idea of being a ceo and um it i mean I, i'm undoubtedly an entrepreneur and I'll, i will be my entire life it's all i've ever done i've really been up until a year and a half ago i've been a ceo my entire career that's all i've ever done um it, it is a bit romanticized it's it's not easy um i mean those those like Thursday nights when payroll's about to go out on Friday and you've got to like swipe your Amex for 40 grand um, and, and hope to God the, the Amex payment yeah. clears into the account of the business so you can cover payroll that's going to draw the next day and having to, to call your investors when um, you know a lawsuit, lawsuit shows up and um, dealing with employee stuff like it can be really stressful. So <laughs> it's a thankless job. Because your customers want more for less money, your employees want to do less for more money, and your investors want you to grow yeah, and be profitable at the same time. So there's there's no real there's no winning. Yeah, <laughs> it's tricky. So yeah, I have all the um, yeah. I, I give a lot of credit to the the hardworking CEOs and operators out there, and it's a it's a tough it's a really tough job. Mm-hmm. So tell me, so you're doing a lot of board work. Tell me what your day looks like now from as an operating partner uh, working with some of these startups that you're working with now who are not at idea stage that are have raised capital, have scale yeah. uh, of different degrees. Yeah, and it was, so it was an like? interesting transition for me, right? I, I have, I, I started looking like in 2016 when we went in the startup studio direction, I wanted to get closer to VC and private equity. I'm, I'm an engineer. I studied engineering and math in, in school. and Why? <laughs> I, Why would I you want to come it's, to this it's... side? The side sucks. <laughs> this side's the worst, man. I mean... Everyone wants to come to this side and it literally, I mean, there's like gazillion David Pauls, you know, the, the true, the true, uh, value of one's it's network is how exactly many operators right. It's you know? very true. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, dude, there's a thousand mm-hmm. fucking capital guys. Especially nowadays. It means yeah. nothing anymore. But yeah. When I, I mean, yeah, especially especially nowadays. My, my goal was to really go figure out the, the finance side of, of business and growth. Um, I came from more of the tech side, the product side, business model side. I wanted to figure out this other dimension that I, I didn't know a lot about. So that was the impetus to move in the VCPE direction. Um, I've, um, and I've kind of like, as I've sort of developed that thesis out, like personally, I, I look at my, my asset allocation, uh, my investments personally, and I'm very heavily weighted early stage because of my exposure through Coplex, right? Um, so, when I left Coplex, it's like, okay, I want to, I want to find, I need to like manage my portfolio a little better, and I need to work with companies that are a little bit later stage, right? Exactly. Yeah. Your personal balance sheet to, to sort of get a balance of really early stage exposure through Coplex, and then I wanted to build some kind of later stage exposure personally. So um, when I got out of the the day to day stuff at Coplex, took a little bit of time off, um, but then started getting involved. And we're me and a couple of my business partners, we um, we're looking for we look for opportunities for sort of eighteen month to two year exit horizon companies. Um, so we're almost like exit helping with exit planning. We're trying to find companies that are either SaaS companies that are looking to sell in eighteen to twenty four months, and maybe they just need a kick in the ass or kind of a you know eighteen to twenty four months are really strong efforts to get the best multiple. Yeah, how, how do you package this? Yeah, let's package this That's thing right. yep. and make it look 18. really good to an investor, which, which is a great, which is a great. I mean, like, what's it, there's no better time to probably yep. and be we, that. We have guy no issue right rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty and like some because we are all operators. Um, we're okay, kind of getting into the into the weeds and 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 helping to do the work that needs to be done. Um, so we're trying to either find you know SaaS companies that need a kick in the ass, eighteen to twenty four months to exit, or 
companies that aren't SaaS companies that want to sell in 18 to 24 months that have margin structures that look like they could be SaaS or tech companies. And we turn them into tech companies over the course of two years and, and uh, arbitrage the multiple in the, the business. So um, not scalable. We want to do like three or four of these a year. We're working with um, three right now in, in addition to our advisory roles and kind of investments that we have. Um, so my day is, back to your question, I mean, my day is every day is a little unique, which I like. Um, but I mean, today I was working on a financial model for one of the companies um, or hiring and onboarding um, a few team members in one of the businesses. I was helping out with some of that work, um, helping out with some um, kind of product kind of product roadmap stuff with one of the companies once fundraising. Yeah. So you're doing this, you're doing this all wrong, Zach. I mean, if you want to be a VC and an operator, you're not supposed to do all this work. You're supposed to say people you do all this work, (laughs) but you actually don't do it. You take a minority stake, right? And then Mm -hmm. you kind of give anecdotal advice on an ivory tower and then you, uh, you know, hopefully they do well. If they, if they turn, if they turn and start doing bad, then you have to kind of, you know, pull up your sleeves. Well, yeah, these are kind of different, right? It's like, we know, um, with these companies, we know we can get it from a you know 4x EBITDA multiple to a 5x revenue multiple if we go get these 180 projects done in 18 months. And we've got a sizable equity position, uh, way more than a VC would have in these deals. Uh, we're picking up you know five to ten percent equity slug from these businesses, so we're we're like very much incentivized to go knock off those 180 projects. And if that means we need to roll up our sleeves and do some ourselves or bring in mm-hmm. vendors to help, like we'll we'll do it. So it's um uh, because mm-hmm. of the time horizon and the positions we have, it it's worth uh, worth putting in a little bit of time. But would would love to work less if you uh, if you have some tricks on how to do that, David. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's just different kind of work, right? Um, you know, I see a lot of op. Operators becoming venture capitalists or, you know, investors or solo GPs or however you want to define it. And they get bored because they're not in that rapid fire environment anymore. And you have to have, you have to see a lot of stuff in order to make a, a, a good decision. Um, you know, because if you're coming from a data point of one business or two businesses, I mean, there's just the, the unless you're a specialist, the, the world's your oyster. Um, and and kind of establishing your network, so it's it's definitely not for everybody. Um, but I, I do. I mean, there's you know obviously there's Greg Scoresby in town, and he's doing every you know he's doing like a ton of SaaS deals and adding a ton of value. So I don't look forward to competing with him when I eventually will have to because he's got a, a really great really great uh, chest of chest of goods. Um, so what are you uh, what are you excited about right now? That's a good question. I mean, we're we're in a, a really kind of a really interesting time right now for for a lot of reasons. I think we've got you know the we're seeing record amounts of venture investments, record records on the private equity side, um, just record dry capital on the sidelines. Like it's going to be a really interesting few years when you combine that with like all of the the innovation happening across the board. I mean with you know, all the Web3 stuff and um, you know, the cryptocurrency and blockchain and AI and ML. And um, there's just uh, the, the ARVR, XR, like some of these trends are just, um, they're going to be really, really interesting. So I think the next decade is going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I would say um, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested right now. Um, I, I've been spending a lot of time in the automotive retail space. And I think this is just one of these verticals that is you know, ripe for disruption. We're seeing kind of these Carvanas of the world come online um, and start to gobble up a little bit of market share. But I've been... Yeah, it's pretty widely known <laughs> that everyone hates I mean, the second, car dealership. 
It's the second biggest. <laughs> I mean, it's the second biggest asset that an individual purchases in, in their life, like next to a home. Right? It's a giant total addressable market, and I just I think the the within five years we could very well be in a position where people don't literally in five as little as five years massive EV adoption and people not owning their vehicles anymore. Um, and I think that that particularly has me interested is this kind of like mobility. Yeah, mobility as a service, vehicle as a service, um, EVs, like that combination is going to entirely dismantle um, the way that kind of the auto manufacturers all the way through to digi- um, automotive retail, digital retail, like all that's going to be overhauled in the next few years. So... I think they should start with like iPhone as a service, right? Like I think, you know, they, they're doing financing, which is kind of cool. But I mean, I, I hate having to buy a new one every, you know, two years. Yeah. They're so expensive. Yeah. What are you, uh, what are you reading right now? Um, not, not enough, actually. I've, I've, uh, I've been in a bit of a, a reading hiatus. Um, the last book, let's see, the last book that I read um, was um, Kaihan Krippendorf, one of my, one of my good friends. Um, he just called, he published a new book called The Innovator's Way. Um, and it talks a lot Ooh, about uh, okay. corporate innovation. And this was, uh, it was a really, really good read if you're interested in all of the, uh, the challenges and, and, and big corporates as it relates to doing innovative things. Cool. And then who do you like to follow? Um, I, I read, uh, besides me, besides me, <laughs> David's blog. Yes. Um, right. Exactly. Uh, Peter Diamandis, if you're not on his newsletter, you, you need to be the abundant. I think it's called abundance. Um, I, I, I read it every day. It's, um, really fascinating stuff. Kind of look forward looking kind of 10, what's five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out, the flying cars and nuclear, nuclear fusion and, um, or nuclear. Yeah, nuclear fusion instead of fission. Um, yeah, there's all these like big kind of like game changing technologies, and and um, he's finding kind of the best content and best innovations every day going awesome. on in that space. And so, where can people find you, Zach? People want to reach out, they want to talk to you, they want to sell their business, and they need some operational assistance. How are they going to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, Google me. I'm I'm on LinkedIn um, or ZachFerris.com. Ooh, own that you're on your own domain name. That's pretty cool. You're the CEO of Zach Ferris. That's it. Yeah, that's my it. wife is the CEO that's of David Paul. <laughs> I don't even own my I have my own my own stuff. She was trying to like give me like uh, hiring advice and like who I should hire and when. I'm like, dude, you're not like the HR director at DWP. And she said, No, I am. So no, she definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on, Zach. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for educating us on the startup studio model, corporate venture capital, and you know everything value creation. Because I think um, you know it's things that are underappreciated. People love talking about scale, but really breaking down how scale actually is achieved through basic fundamentals is something that's uh, neglected in, in the marketplace. So thanks for coming on, mm-hmm. and uh, look forward to having you on later. Thanks for all you do, David. All right, bye. We'll see you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Ball is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.